Chapter Five, Part One of the Ghost Camp. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ghost Camp by Rolf Boulderwood. Chapter Five, Part One. And in the joyous days of youth, the glorious, the immortal, the true the ever-adorable deity of the soul's childhood, unheeding, careless of the future, thinking, like charity, no evil, revelling in the purely sensuous enjoyment of the fair present, which of the so-called pleasures of the future can claim equality of richness or flavour with those of that unsurpassable period of the mysterious human pageant? Carpe diem! Oh, fortunate heir of life's richest treasure-house is the true, the only true philosophy. Enjoy, while the pulse is high, the vigour of manhood untouched by time, the spirit unsaddened by distrust of the future. For you glows that cloudless azure. For you the streams murmur, the breezes sigh, the good horse bounds freely over the elastic sword. For you shine the eyes of the beauteous maiden, with a foretaste of the divine dream of love. Thank the kind gods that have provided so bounteous a feast of soul and sense. Oh, happy thou, that art bidden to such a banquet of the immortals. Quaff the ambrosia, while the light still glows on Olympus, and Nemesis is as yet an unimagined terror. In the days which were to come, in the destiny which the fates were even then weaving for him, Valentine Blount told himself that never in his whole life had so many conditions of perfect enjoyment been combined as in that memorable riding party. The sun rays prophetic of an early summer, for which the men of a thousand shearing sheds were even now mustering, were warm, yet tempered by the altitude of the region and the proximity of the snowfields. All nature seemed to recognise the voice of spring. The birds came forth from their leafy coverts, their wild but not unmusical notes sounding strangely unfamiliar to the English stranger. An occasional kangaroo dashed through their path, flying with tremendous bounds to its home on the mountainside. A lot of half-wild cattle stood gazing for a few moments, then cleared, as Miss Imogen expressed it, for more secluded regions. "'I wonder if I could wheel them,' she said, as her bright glance followed the receding drove. "'I see Ned and Paddy on the other wing. Mr. Blount, you can follow, but don't pass me, whatever you do.' And in spite of Mrs. Bruce's prudential, "'Oh, Imogen, don't be rash,' away went the willful damsel, through the thickening timber, at a pace with which the visitor, excellently mounted as he was, on a trained stock-horse, found it no easy task to keep up. Directly this enterprising movement on the part of the young lady was observed by the watchful Paddy, he called to Mr. Bruce, "'Miss Immy Wheelam, my word! Mammy, you manum this one pickaninny yarraman me back up!' Paddy's old stock-horse dashed off at speed, little inferior to that of the young lady's thoroughbred, and appeared on the off-side wing, just as the fair Diana had wheeled or turned the leaders to the right, Paddy riding up to them on the left, and menacing with his stock-whip, caused them to turn towards Imogen. 
This manoeuvre persevered with, was finally crowned with success, inasmuch as the two protagonists, working together and causing the drove to ring, or keep moving in a circle, finally persuaded them to stop and be examined, when with heaving flanks they bore testimony to the severity of the pace. Mrs. Bruce, with instinctive knowledge of the points of the situation, had kept quietly behind her guest, who, so far from passing his fair pilot, found that it gave him enough to do to keep sight of her. He did service, however, if unconsciously, by keeping at a certain distance behind Imogen, which prevented the cattle from breaking or running back behind her. Mrs. Bruce had ridden quietly behind the rear guard, or tail, as provincially expressed, and as Mr. Bruce, though hampered with the cob, which he had caught and led along, kept his place between Mrs. Bruce and Paddy, the disposition was theoretically perfect, also successful, which in battles, as well as in the lesser pursuits of the world, is the great matter, after all. "'Upon my word, Imogen,' said Mr. Bruce, "'you have given us a pretty gallop, and as these bullocks are fat, it can't have done them too much good. However,' riding round as he spoke, it gives me a chance to look through them, and hello! By Jove, it's as well I came here today. Somebody has put a fresh brand on that black snail-horned bullock. J.C., just over the E.H.B. I never sold that beast, I swear. And who the dickens has put those two letters on? Been done in a pen. You can see it's put on from above. Me see him fresh brand on one feller cow, stated Paddy with gravity and deliberation. Me think a might duff bullock along a wild horse gully. Me see him track shod horse that one day. Mammy shoot em brumby. All right, Paddy, said his master. You look em out track another one day. My word, replied Paddy. Me track em up jolly quick. Mr. Bruce seemed disconcerted by the discovery just made. It was not unimportant. He had suspected that he was losing cattle at this end of the run, among the ranges and broken country. He had not too good an opinion of the honesty of the small parties of miners who worked the gullies and creeks which led to the river. He supposed that they got a beast now and then, but was loath to believe that there was any organised system of plunder. Now it was plain as print that cattle were yarded in small numbers and branded before they were delivered to the buyers, whoever they were. How many had been taken he could hardly venture to guess at. Cattle being worth from eight to twelve pounds a head, it would not take so many to be worth a thousand pounds. It made him look grave, as he said, I'm afraid, after this pleasant ride of ours, that it's time for these ladies to get home. It will be past lunchtime when they sight Miranda, and Mrs. Bruce has family responsibilities, you know. However, I'll send Paddy on with you till he puts you on a track which will lead to your destination." Mr. Blount was profuse in thanks, and exhausted himself in statements that he had never enjoyed himself so much in his life, and had a glorious gallop into the bargain. That it had given him quite a new idea of Australia, that he had been slow to believe the romantic tales he had heard about Australian bushriders and their cross-country work. He was now in a position to confirm any such statement made, and to declare that Australian ladies in science, coolness, and courage, were equal to any horsewomen in any country in the world. He should never forget the hospitality he had received, 
nor the lessons in bushmanship. He trusted to revisit Moronda again before long, when he might, perhaps, be permitted to taste a more leisurely enjoyment of their fascinating country life. Dismounting, he took leave of the ladies, assuring Mrs. Bruce that he should never forget her kindness and that of Mr. Bruce. If he was less diffuse in his explanations to Miss Imogen, it may have been that there was a warmth of his final hand-clasp, or an expression as their eyes met, before she turned her horse's head and rejoined her friends, which was comparatively satisfactory. The return stage was short, as Blount did not desire to take the Hawkeye Aboriginal too near the claim, much less within tracking distance of the stockyard. The fresh tracks of the unwilling cattle, forced into a strange and small enclosure, would be like a placard in large letters to the Wildwood Scout. Hence, as soon as he had landmarks to guide him, he dismissed this Iberno-Australian attendant, who handed over the cob and departed with a cheerful countenance and a couple of half-crowns. Left to himself, Mr. Blount rode slowly and needfully along what he conceived to be the way to the claim, much exercised in his mind as to the line of conduct. Putting together various incidents and unconsidered trifles, the conviction flashed across his mind that he had been involuntarily an associate of cattle-stealers, and it might well be believed an accomplice. What position would be his if the whole gang were arrested, and he himself included in the capture? Could it be, during that ride with Little River Jack, that he had assisted to drive certain fat cattle, afterwards sworn to be the property of Mr. Bruce of Maronda, and bearing his well-known brand E.H.B.? Could he deny that he had heard cattle put into the stockyard near the Lady Julia claim late in the evening by John Carter, alias Little River Jack, and taken away before daylight? He had received his share of the money for which the gold won in the claim, where he had worked, was sold, or said to be sold. How could he prove that it was not part of the price of stolen cattle, and so on? He felt like many another man innocent of evil, or thought of evil, that, with absurd credulity and want of reasonable prudence, he had, to a certain degree, enmeshed himself, might, indeed, find it difficult, if not impossible, to get free from the consequences of a false accusation. Perhaps it might have been his duty, in the interests of justice, to have acquainted Mr. Bruce with the circumstances of his sojourn at the claim with the O'Haras and Dixon, otherwise lanky also of the suspicious cattle-dealing. This would have simply amounted to giving away the men whose bread he was eating, and who were, however unfortunate the position, his mates and comrades. Mr. Bruce would, naturally, lose no time in setting the police to work. Then Little River Jack had certainly saved his life on the Razorback Ridge. Another second or two and the cob with his rider would have been lying among the rocks below. One such accident did happen there, when man and horse went over and were found dead and mangled. As for the two O'Haras and George Dixon, he had no sort of doubt now of their being mixed up with the taking of Mr. Bruce's cattle, possibly of those other squatters in his neighbourhood. Of the men who brought the cattle to the yard, he, of course, had no knowledge, and could have none. In the half-darkness of the winter dawn, he could only dimly discern a couple of horsemen, one of whom appeared to ride on with Jack Carter, 
the other returning. He was glad now that he had not seen them near enough for identification. He was close to the claim now, having hit upon the track which he remembered was only a few miles distant. What was he to say to his late companions, and what would be their feelings towards him, if they heard of the police being after them so soon after his trip down the river? Would they be persuaded that he had not betrayed, or at any rate attracted suspicion towards them, which came to the same thing? He was in their power. He could not but feel that. What chance could he have against three determined men, with perhaps as many more who might be members of the outside gang, the men who were heard but not seen, for now he remembered to have heard the lowing of driven cattle more than once, and the guarded voices of drovers. There was, of course, only one thing to do. He must face the position squarely and tell the truth, whatever might be the consequences. He would warn them that Mr. Bruce suspected the miners in the locality of being in league with cattle stealers, who were selling his fat cattle to the butchers on the smaller diggings, of which there were not a few between the heads of the rivers and the foothills of the mountain range. They knew Mr. Bruce, a determined, fearless man, who would show them no mercy. They had better clear, to use one of their own expressions, before the pursuit was too hot. Revolving these thoughts in his mind, he rode briskly on. He had remounted the cob, now very fresh, and led the borrowed horse, who, as he thought, deserved all reasonable consideration. When within half a mile of the camp, he saw a man walking along the track towards him. It was Philem O'Hara, the big miner, whom he had always admired as a fine specimen of an Australian. He was a good-natured giant, possessing also a large share of the rollicking, reckless humour, which is the heritage of the Milesian Celt. Philem was a native-born Australian, however, and on occasion could be sufficiently stern, not to say savage. Now he did not look so pleasant as usual. "'Safe home, Mr. Blount,' he said. "'I see you've found that cob of yours. "'Bad cess to him. "'I've lost a day through him, and maybe more than that, "'but I'm dealing with a gentleman, lucky for all concerned.' "'I hope so, Phelim,' said the Englishman. "'But what's the matter? "'The camp seems deserted.' "'The meaning's this, Mr. Blount.' "'Here his voice became rough, if not menacing. "'The police are after us. "'There's some yarn got up about Little River Jack "'and his duffing cattle and selling them on the small diggings. Pat and Lanky have cleared. I stayed behind to get this horse of mine and give you the office. There's some says you gave us away to Mr. Bruce, and we know what he is when he thinks he's been robbed. I've heard your story, Phelim, now for mine. I met Mr. Bruce, who'd been shooting wild horses. He asked me what I was doing on his run. He spoke rather shortly. I told him I was looking for my cob, and that I believed it was crown land, open to all. He then asked me to describe the cob, and telling me it was in his paddock, invited me to stay at Moronda all night, where I was most hospitably treated. He proposed to ride part of the way back with me, and for Mrs. Bruce and his sister-in-law to accompany us. "'That's Miss Imogen,' said O'Hara. "'Isn't she the beauty of the world? And ride! There isn't a stock-rider from this to Omeo, "'that she couldn't lose in mountain country. "'Mrs. Bruce rides well, too, I'm told.' "'Yes, indeed. "'We rounded up a mob of cattle. "'Miss Imogen wheeled them at the start. "'Black Paddy, 
who had been brought to lead the cob, was on the other wing. After that they began to ring and stopped. Then Mr. Bruce, looking through them, unfortunately saw one of the EHB bullocks with a strange brand newly put on. That bullock's been yarded, he said, and the brand J.C. has been put on in a crush. I said nothing. Paddy came with me as far as the cattle track, by the creek that leads to the claim. I remembered that. Then he gave me the cob, and I came on. Now you have the whole story. I did not say where I had come from, nor did Mr. Bruce question me. Of course, I put two and two together about the fat cattle, but I said nothing. I have eaten your salt, and Little River Jack certainly saved my life. Then you didn't give us away, said O'Hara, or say where we was camped, or tell our names. O'Hara's not a good one, more's a pity. And here the big mountaineer looked regretful, even repentant over the past. No, not a word, as luck would have it, Mr. Bruce did not ask me where or with whom I had been living. And what brought you back here? Wouldn't it have been easy enough to clear away down the river and get shut of us for good and all? Easy enough, and to have gone down river by steamer, but I wanted to warn you in time. I knew Mr. Bruce suspected that there were diggers hereabouts, that knew about the fat cattle he missed. So I came to give you fair warning. Where are the others? They've cleared out. I don't think they'll be seen in a hurry, this side anyhow. They packed all they wanted and sent word to some of their pals to come and collar the rest. They can't be pulled for that. There's a few ounces of gold coming to you, and the clean-up was the best we've had. Here it is. And suiting the action to the word, he pulled out from a leather pouch a wash-leather bag, which, for its size, felt heavy. Keep it, Phelim. I won't take a penny of it. I learned a good deal while I was with you, and shall always be pleased to think that I worked with men, and could hold my own among them. You're a gentleman, sir, and we'll always uphold you as one, no matter what happens to us. We're not bad chaps in our way, though things have gone against us. What'll you do now? Camp here tonight? No? Then I'll ride with you past Razorback. You'll have light then, and the road's under your feet. You'd better take my horse till we pass Razorback. He won't boggle at it, if it was twice as narrow. It did not take long to pack all that was strictly necessary, which alone Mr. Blount decided to take with him. After which O'Hara boiled the billy and produced a decent meal, which Mr. Blount, having tasted nothing since breakfast, did justice to. No time was lost then, and O'Hara, leading off with the cob, started at a canter, with which Blount on his horse found no difficulty in keeping up. The contract was performed, they safely negotiated the perilous path, the mountain horse treading as securely and safely as on a macadamized high road, and the cob going very differently with a different rider. He was then bestridden by his lawful owner, who prepared to make good time to Bunjil. The moon was rising when the men, so strangely met and associated, parted. Blount held out his hand and the other grasped with unconsciously crushing force. Then the mountaineer quitted the road, and plunging down the steep into the darksome forest, disappeared from sight. Bunjil Township was reached before midnight. There had been the local excitement of an improvised race meeting, the head prize being a bridle and saddle. The Consolation Stakes boasted a silver-mounted whip, 
generously presented by the respected host of the Bunjil Hotel, so that Mr. Blount, whose train of thought for the last hour or two wavered between encouragement and depression, as he dreaded the inn being shut, the ostler asleep, the fire out, and the girl gone to bed, felt reassured as he heard voices and saw lights, indicative of cheery wakefulness. By good luck, too, the best bedroom and the parlour were unoccupied. Sheila promised a fire in the latter apartment, and tea ready in less than no time. The ostler took the cob to a loose box, just vacated, while Mr. Blount, having deposited his swag in the bedroom, and made all ready for a solid meal, and a royal toasting of his person before the fire of logs, felt quite a glow of happiness. On re-entering the parlour, he was warmly welcomed by Sheila, who indeed was so unaffectedly cordial in hailing his safe return, that the guest concluded that there must have been reason for conjecturing that the reverse might have occurred. As she greeted him with natural unstudied welcome, he could not resist taking both her hands in his, and shaking them with a warmth corresponding with her feeling of gratitude at his safe return from apparently unknown and mysterious dangers. The girl blushed and disengaged her hands, but showed no discomposure as she said, "'We didn't know but something might have happened to you, out in that wild place, and Little River Jack said you had a narrow escape on Razorback, as your cob got frightened and might have gone over the downfall like Paddy Farrell. Then Dick came along. He sold out his share to you, didn't he? And he got on the spree for a day or two and let out a few things that he'd better have kept to himself.' "'So taking it together, we're all glad, Mr. Middleton, the missus, and me too, that you're back safe and sound.' While the latter part of this dialogue was proceeding, Mr. Blount had seated himself at the table, with his back to the fire, and made a frontal attack upon a broiled steak flanked by a dish of floury potatoes, which told of the sharpening effect on the appetite of a long day in the saddle, and the stimulation of a night journey with two degrees of frost. "'You had better take away these dishes, Sheila, or I shall never stop eating. "'I think, however, that I can hold out till breakfast, now we have got so far.' "'About this time the landlord appeared, blandly apologetic for delay, "'but pleading the necessity for being in the bar while there were so many gents, "'round anxious to go home, on good terms with themselves. "'More likely to run against a fence or the bough of a tree,' said Sheila, who had now rejoined the party. That's the sort of good terms with themselves. That's the fashion, Bunjil way. I wonder there's not more legs and arms broken than there are. Why, it's a good month since you left us, Mr. Blount, said the landlord, cheerily unheeding the maid's moral reflections. The sergeant was here a day or two back and asked after you. Little River Jack came last week and talked of going away unless things mended. He billed Stubbins for a quarter of beef he owed him and they had a row and got to fighting over it. "'How did that come off?' queried the guest, dallying with his second cup of tea and a plate of buttered toast. "'Jack's rather a lightweight.' "'So he is, but he can use his hands, and he's that active he takes a lot of beating. Well, the butcher at Green Point is a couple of stone heavier, and fancies himself a bit. He says, "'You'd better summon me, Jack.' We all knew what that meant. "'You're taking a mean advantage,' says Jack. It's a cowardly thing to do, but I'll tell you what, if you're man enough, I'll fight you for it. It's a matter of four notes, 
five and twenty shillings a hundred. Are you on? All right, said the Greenpoint chap. So they stripped to it and had a regular ding-dong going in. The butcher seemed to have the best of it at first, but Jack wore him out, hitting and getting away and dancing round him, all them tricks. At last he bunged up his eyes and nearly blinded him, they say. Then Jack went in and finished him. What with loss of wind and the punishment he got, the butcher was clean knocked out afore the tenth round, so he didn't come to time and the referee gave it against him. Jack got the four notes and cleared. The butcher paid up honourable, but he couldn't show outside the shop for a fortnight afterwards. A capital stand-up fight, I'm sure. I should have liked to have been there to see it. And now I think I'll turn in. I'm a bit tired and dead sleepy. Good night, Mr. Middleton. Good night, Sheila. I'll have breakfast at nine o'clock, please. Bacon and eggs is my present fancy. I'll stay in Bunjil a few days, and a loaf for a change. Is there anything in life more conducive to happiness than waking at dawn in the country, assured of comfort, free from anxiety, and relieved from duty? Few people have experienced it. And nowhere can the rare luxury of the conditions be more fully savoured than in Australia. Mr. Blount was firmly of this opinion, as in virtue of his late habitudes, the bird's wild melody awoke him, as the first dawnlight tinged the grey, reluctant east. However, on reflection, he decided to take another hour's repose, while all things were favourable to such indulgence. Then, between sleeping and waking, he dozed deliciously until half-past seven, when he sallied forth, towel in hand, to the creek bank. In the garden was a rude but competent bathhouse, from which he was enabled to plunge into the ice-cold stream. Truth to tell, he did not make a lengthened stay therein, the mercury being little, if anything, above freezing point, but devoted himself to a complete and conscientious scrubbing with the rough towel, at the conclusion of which he found that a delicious glow had rewarded his efforts, and the praiseworthy self-denial of the cold, colder, coldest bath he had taken as a daily custom, ever since he could remember. It is the aftertaste which, as in other matters, is so truly luxurious. Running back to the house, he saw that his expectation of a full-sized, first-class fire in the breakfast-room had been realised. After warming himself at this, he attacked the serious business of dressing for the day, which he pursued with such diligence that he was ready for the bacon and eggs, before referred to, as nearly as possible at the appropriate hour. "'Got you a good fire, you see,' remarked Sheila, who, smiling and rosy as the morn, stood in attendance. "'Hope you slept, Word. My word, we got an awful start. Didn't know what was going to happen. When Senior Constable Moore came here the day before yesterday to get warrants for Little River Jack, alias John Carter, Phelim O'Hara, his brother Patrick, and also a man working in the claim known as Jack Blunt, and one Tumberumba Dick.' He asked me and Mr. Middleton a lot of questions. And what did you say? We didn't know much, or say much either, if it comes to that. Yes, knew that little River Jack passed through here now and again. Where he went to, couldn't say. Hadn't seen him lately. Heard the O'Haras were working miners from Queensland or Gippsland. Only seen them once. Tumberumba Dick stayed a day or two here last week, and got on a spree, rather. Said he'd sold his share to Jack Blunt, and was clearing out for West Australia. Little River Jack was a butcher, and supplied the small diggings. 
"'What did they ask about Jack Blunt, eh?' "'Oh, a lot. What was he like? How was he dressed?' "'Tall and dark,' I said. "'Not bad-looking.' "'Here Mr. Blount bowed. "'Dressed like any other gentleman travelling for pleasure. "'Rough tweed suit and leggings. "'Left a few things here. "'Went away a month ago with Little River Jack.' "'What for, did he say?' the senior constable asked. "'Yes, he talked quite free and open. "'Said he wanted to see the country, "'what gold diggings were like and all that. "'Jack promised to show him a regular mountain claim "'for Lady Julia.' Tumberumba Dick, when he came by, said he'd sold his share to him for twenty pounds. He was full up of mountain claims and was clearing out for West Australia, where there were big rises to be made. Why didn't they serve warrants, then? The senior constable had a long talk with our old sergeant. He's retired now, but everybody puts great faith in him. Did you hear what he said? No, but it came out that the sergeant told him to be careful about arresting men on suspicion, there was no direct evidence, those were the words, against any of the men named. Nobody could swear to their having been seen taking or branding cattle. Those who knew the O'Haras spoke of them as hard-working diggers, who sold their gold to Little River Jack, or got him to sell it for them. As for Jack Blunt, they said. Here the speaker hesitated. Well, what did they say about him? I hardly like to tell you, sir. "'Oh, come out with it. What does it matter?' "'Well, sir,' the girl smiled mischievously. "'They said,' that is, Tumberumba Dick told someone, who told someone else, "'that you were a harmless new chum that hardly knew a cow from a calf "'and couldn't have duffed a bullock off a range if you'd tried for a year. "'Very complimentary indeed, I must say. "'So everybody's honest in this country who can't ride, eh?' "'Well, yes, sir. About cattle. With sheep it's different.' "'I see. Never struck me before. I'm glad my honesty is undoubted in a cattle district, because I can't gallop down a range. They don't fine or imprison for bad riding, I suppose, yet. "'And so you stood up for me, Sheila, didn't you?' "'How did you know that, sir?' "'Why, of course you did. I knew you would, because we've always been friends.' "'Besides, I saw you looking after me, warningly, the day I went away with Jack Carter.' "'I know I did,' said the girl impetuously. "'I had a great mind to say all I knew and tell you to have nothing to do with him or his mates. "'And why didn't you?' "'Well, you were so set upon going, and it wasn't for a girl like me to advise a gentleman of your sort.' "'I don't see why you shouldn't. Everyone is as good as anyone else in Australia, so the papers say at any rate.' "'Nothing of the sort. A gentleman is a gentleman, and a servant-girl a servant in Australia. All over the world, if it comes to that. I don't hold with this democratic rot. All the same, there's nothing to prevent you and me having a talk now and then, as long as we keep our places.' "'I should think not,' he rejoined. "'And though I might have got into a serious difficulty through Carter's introductions, I'm not sorry, on the whole, that I went with him. The experience was most interesting.' "'That means you saw somebody. "'Who was she, I wonder? "'Men are all alike, gentle and simple. "'I believe I could give a guess, "'as we heard you went down the river.'" End of chapter 5, part 1